0: Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work, the global authority on workplace culture. I'm your host, Rula Amiri, Content Director at Great Place to Work. Alexei Robichaud, co-founder and CEO of BetterUp, joins me on today's episode, and I know it's going to make you rethink a few things. We covered a lot today, from the power of recognition and mattering at work, to the importance of inner work days and the three jobs everyone at BetterUp has. But what stuck with me is why we should stop thinking of management as supervisors and more as catalytic converters. You're also going to hear about the Camino de Santiago Trail, which is a pilgrimage across Spain, and how that experience influenced Alexi's approach to culture. Alexi, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Is Alexi short for... Alexander is that is that your given name?
1: No, my given name is Lexi.
0: Lexi, and you're Greek? Are you? Is your?
1: Yep, my mom is from Greece. I'm a dual citizen. Yep, my dad is from the bayous of Louisiana, hence the last name.
0: I'm asking because I'm Middle Eastern, so I'm I'm sure dinner tables look very similar growing up. You know, we had the 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 feta cheese and the olives and grape leaves and all that, all that good stuff. So we're gonna spend our time today talking about the culture you've built. Uh, But before we do that, I wanted to set the stage a little bit. So, Alexi, you're the CEO of BetterUp, a mental health and professional virtual coaching platform startup, which I believe is the largest in the world. You co-founded BetterUp 10 years ago. You've been named to Forbes' inaugural list of the 50 people changing the future of work. And you're Prince Harry's boss. You hired him as chief impact officer in March 2021. All very impressive. But there was a period of time when life looked very different. Uh, You were in your 20s. You were working in Silicon Valley, not having a great experience. So you walked away from it all, did some soul searching. If the Internet is to be believed, you got therapy, you read books, uh, you got coaching, you went on a pilgrimage to Spain, the infamous pilgrimage, which I'm actually curious about, all in search of answers. And those answers led you to where you are today. So just starting from there, how did stepping away from work lead you to create better up and generally speaking, you know, shape your approach to company culture?
1: Well, thank you for doing the internet research. In this case, the internet is actually accurate. You know, it was interesting. I I think for me, my journey to better up, I often joke, started when I was 17. In the background, while I was a young, overwhelmed, burning myself out executive in Silicon Valley, nights and weekends, I was still volunteering with a nonprofit that I had helped start in high school called Youth Leadership America, where we actually did after-school peer-to-peer based mentorship and coaching on leadership and life skills for high school students. And that was a big passion of mine. And and since I had been 17 and started that with some buddies, my friend John Wynn had the idea and was the original founder and pulled some of us in. And, um, you know, what happened as I took the time off is I kind of returned to my true north, which was helping people build meaningful lives and helping them grow and develop. And um, it had always been there. And I just never thought it could be my job. It was like, well, I need a real career. I have to go get a job. I just do this for fun and volunteer. And Eddie, my now co-founder of BetterUp, was volunteering nights and weekends with me, coaching these inner city students in San Jose and Oakland in the Bay Area. And then we had other chapters in Orange County. And so I think the simplest way is to say, when I stepped out of work, I really, I did. I, I literally walked away. I walked across most of Spain and I returned to my true north, which was, hey, what really energizes me, what really gives me a sense of meaning, what really makes me fired up is helping people realize their potential. And that was the genesis of BetterUp. How could I do that in a way, what we're doing for these kids, but in a grown-up way, a more scalable way, and a way that was more digitally enabled so that you could be anywhere in the world and get the help you need. And so in a way, I was just designing for myself as a young executive. This is what I wanted it wasn't quite therapy, it wasn't quite executive coaching. And I was also fortunate that it was really, in one thing, the same work I had been doing for at that point in my life already about a decade.
0: So let's talk about your culture there at Better Up a bit. Your experience with inner work certainly shows up in your culture. You give employees four inner work days a year. So can you define inner work days, why they're a priority, and the impact?
1: We talked about my lineage from Greece, you being from the Middle East, like you go back to any ancient tradition, there's always space created to do nothing, whether it's meditation, whether it's contemplative prayer. And we've somewhat lost that in modernity. And so the idea with inner work is how do we help structure and guide people into more introspection in a positive way, more reflection, more contemplation about what's most important in their life and work. And it's a contrarian thesis that actually, by doing less, then people will be more focused. They'll prioritize better. They'll essentialize better, and they'll actually create more creative outputs. and And what we found is it's been tremendously true. And so, you know, I, I get to talk to a lot of CHOs, a lot of CEOs in my role of of the world's largest companies, uh, mainly Fortune one thousands and. You know, the best CEOs, you'd be surprised how little meetings they have. And people have been saying this since Peter Drucker. Well, what are they doing all day? They're doing inner work, whether they call it that or not. They're strategizing. They're doing white space sessions. They're, they're defragging their hard drives of their mind. They're making big decisions. They're not busy, but actually they're still doing work. And so that's what we tried to capture with inner work. It's not that it's like idle time. You're working, you're just not working outside of yourself. You're working inside of yourself. But then when you nail that inner game, the outer game is so much easier. And we spend so much time frenetically focused on the outer game in modern society that we forget some of the fundamentals of being a human and connecting with yourself. And so we decided, Eddie and I, that as an employer, we wanted to take a stand and say, you know what? We pay you for all that work. We don't just pay you for the outer work where the output shows up we actually, to be fair, want to pay you for the inner work. And we hope all our employees do that. We also realize it's new to a lot of people. And so we, we design these days where nothing happens at the company externally, it's inner work day. And so they're not days off from work, they're days to go work on yourself. And people do that with nature walks, people do that with meditation. Some people do that just by doing things that really help them get in the zone and think and really gel with their values. But whatever the case may be, inner work is about optimizing your inner game which of course shows up in a better outer game over time.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you persuade a fellow leader who isn't convinced inner work days will help the the company in a tangible way, like in the bottom line? So they might theor- you know, hear what you're saying and and understand. Oh, sure, if you you know improve your life outside of work, that will help you at work. But how does it actually show up at better up in terms of innovation ideas, well being? those bottom line results.
1: Let's just work backwards. Where do you compete? You compete on breakthroughs, innovations, ideas. Okay. Well, what scientifically are the conditions for good creativity, good ideas? We know this isn't like, you know, call a neurologist, a neuroscientist. This isn't like a, you know, a mystery anymore. It's like, yeah, people are more creative when they're not stressed out, turns out. People are more creative when they have time to think. People are more creative when, you know, they don't have uh, marital issues bleeding into the workplace because they have time to focus on them. Okay. So you can kind of just start to unpack this. Is the inner work day as an item, the way to achieve that? I'm not here to be like the apostle of inner work uh, days. I will definitely promote inner work, however you want to do that, right? And I would just say, I find senior leaders actually get this. they reflect on their own productivity. They're like, yeah, you're right. When I didn't go to meetings for two days and really answer that big strategic question, that unlocked a lot of energy in my business and a lot of performance.
0: So I'm curious what you do in terms of special recognition for employees. So we just completed a study of more than 700,000 workers, looked at the correlation between well-being and giving extra at work, what we call discretionary effort. And nearly everyone, you know, 94% of people who say they're experiencing high levels of well-being describe their culture as a company where people give extra to get the job done. So we look further and we said, okay, well, what drives people to give Extra and a top driver is special recognition. So, employees feel that everyone has equal opportunity to get special recognition. They are 120%, so 2.2 times more likely to say people give extra here. And that speaks to being seen and recognized for good work. What is an effective way or some ways that you recognize your people at BetterUp? And what would you say to leaders who don't make recognition a priority? Because many you know, don't, they think, oh, people, they know how we feel, you know, they know they're important, but special recognition needs to be shown and told.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really cool finding to be able to quantify that, by the way. And I think, you know, conceptually, that corroborates decades of research, more recently, behavioral economics research. I think you you said, it, and I'll talk about what we do as a super system. But honestly, where this lives is at the manager level, and at the team level, right? It's like, recognition is the most powerful driver of discretionary energy and effort. As you just shared, it's also the cheapest. So if if a leader isn't doing it, generally, there's one of two things I I, I, I have to believe. One, they just don't know how. And, And I think this is pretty common because sadly, they didn't have that role modeled in their own career. And so that's a coaching opportunity to teach and role model that. I can talk about how we do that. Or two... There's actually just an ego block there, which is decently, it's like I didn't get this, you need to just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Okay, that's just kind of ego. Like, it's not about you. It's not about when you were 20. It's like, this is the world we live in now. Let's go get, you know, this is what works, right? Let's be pragmatists here. What What we do is we have company level stuff. We do cultural value rewards twice a year. So we actually recognize employees who are modeling and it's based on peer selection, leaders help manage the process, who are luminaries of our values and are really bringing that to life. And uh, they earn my like, cool trips. Like pre-COVID, we're restarting this. I take 10 employees a year on the Camino de Santiago for two weeks in Spain. Eddie's from Peru. He takes people on the Inca Trail. And so like you get these cool, we call them better up adventures. You get access to that. You could have like a spa day, things for inner work. There's, there's a lot we try to do to recognize that. We do discretionary spot bonuses for really good projects and work. So there's there's things like that. We highlight at all hands. We find we just did this. We just were highlighting deals and the teams that supported the deals and new customer partnerships. And some we highlighted hadn't even closed yet because the ground game was just so good. We wanted to communicate. It's not just about like, the, oh, right, you closed the deal. It's actually about like, you have a winning ground game. I kind of don't care if this deal closes or wins because probabilistically, if you keep playing this way, We're going to close a lot of deals. We're going to have a lot of new friends and new customers and more people's lives being positively impacted by our mission. So we have those structural things. But the most powerful thing I've seen is actually not what Eddie or I do in these all hands or things like that. It's one layer down what functional leaders have done in creating a culture of sending out weekly emails, recognizing some of the best work in their departments. And they just send this out to their distribution lists. on like, hey, it's Friday. And it's basically every Friday. We have leaders who are praising employees, See, not randomly, but like, this was a deck, Samantha said, it was amazing, here's why. So it does two things. One, it recognizes that employee, but I think the under-leveraged side of recognition is recognition to the employee being recognized is recognition. To everyone else, it's vicarious learning and role modeling. And so like that's when it's really well designed. And so I think the job to be done as a CEO is how do you... Not delegate this because you need to do it at these symbolic kind of like company level things, but how do you inculcate a culture and model where you have functional leaders when you're not even thinking about it, doing it. And I get it. I get copied on emails all the time from functional leaders where they're celebrating an employee and they just copy me on it. And it's like a one sentence reply. Amazing. OMG, this is awesome. Congratulations. Okay. So now their functional leader has it. They've copied the CEO or Eddie, the co-founder, and they're getting that. That's cheap, that's fast, but that's powerful. And the cheapness doesn't demean that it's the salt of life. This is the zest that makes people want to come to work every day and makes them feel as they should, like their contributions matter.
0: It's nice that we can quantify it because also leaders are looking for those numbers. You know, they want their people to be productive and go above and beyond, but they're often missing, well, what's going to help them get there? (laughs) Totally.
1: Totally. It's amazing how ROI driven leaders become when it comes to recognizing people, you know, we'll spend like a ton of money on a marketing campaign with no measurement, but it's like, oh, I really need a business case to know I should send someone a thank you email. It's like, okay, let's just all wink, wink. We'll pretend that's why, but it's like, you'll spend millions of dollars on things that have like, well, that was a bit, that wasn't even close to a business case. You just spent the money and that's in any business yet on something that is essentially free. It's like, well, I'm not sure it's worth my time. It's like, well, we're talking 10 seconds. So I I guarantee your ROI is in the tens of thousands of percentages.
0: Yes. Yes. So let's talk about a mattering at work. It's a phrase you shared at Davos, you know, this year based on better up research that showed 70% of workers want to know their work matters. And when they feel it does, they're more likely to stay at their job. Mattering is also one of the recommendations from the Surgeon General just recently, and how to create a sense of well-being for workers. I believe he even used that term. Maybe he heard it from you. We don't know.
1: He he may or may not have. He may or may not have.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And our research shows the same thing. Meaningful work, you know, meaning that your your work is not quote just a job, is the biggest retention driver across. Demographics, industries, and geography. But going one step further, Harvard Business School, using our data at Great Place to Work, found that companies where employees felt a sense of purpose at work and believe their leaders set a clear direction and expectation, so purpose plus clarity, those companies outperformed the stock market by nearly 7%. And the returns were even bigger when middle managers and individual contributors experienced purpose. And clarity, and it's not on the employees to find purpose or, or or make it clear. That's on the managers, as you just said. That's on leaders. So, how do you help create a sense of purpose for your people at Better Up and help managers provide that clarity to employees?
1: It's it's so true, and and thanks for reading the research. Both meaning and mattering, which are you know they're cousin concepts, but you know there is there is some nuance and, and difference there. What we found is we, we dug in our own data and said, okay, what you found is similar, which is good. More research corroborates so Again, not kind of rocket science, like when people feel work is important and means they're going to care more. Okay, great. We kind of get that. What we asked is, well, what makes work meaningful for people? Because this is really the crux of it. Can I make work meaningful for you? And the, and the strict answer is no. Meaning is a subjectively mediated construct. It's very personal. It gets back to inner work, your values. Okay. But what we found is work was the most meaningful for people. The single biggest driver was when work felt like it contributed to their own growth and development. And, And this is huge, right? we're all kind of selfish, not in a bad way here, but like, it makes sense. Like, I'm, you pay me, I want something from this, you get something from this, like, this is like, this is good. This is actually how it should work in a, in a, in a good, clean economy, right? We both win. We're both winning. Okay. The second thing we looked at is like, well, how to, can management play a role in that? And what we found is the single most important thing for management in making work meaningful is simply communicating to people that it's important to you that their work is meaningful. It was this like, kind of like what jaw dropping, obvious thing of like, to your point, management just telling people, Hey, like, it's really important that your work matters to you. And like, we're here we want to make that, that itself makes work matter more. It's not a sleight of hand because you have to be genuine about it, but it's deceptively simple. So like this, I think really starts with senior leaders and it needs to go down to the management level to permeate on a day-to-day basis and persist. But it starts with senior leaders connecting what you're doing to the mission of the company and how that is improving society and how that is improving people's lives. And this gets into the mattering work. Mattering has different dimensions. There's I matter. What do I matter to, though? There's a reciprocity to mattering. I have to matter to someone else. Do I matter to my coworkers? Do I matter to my family? Do I matter to society? Do I matter to God or whatever higher being I believe in? In the workplace, you really can connect to the coworkers, the society deeply and so that is the job of senior leaders to paint that and so how we do this at better up is we're all about this like our strategy is always a mission to metrics cascade here's how here's our mission here's how we believe we uh, uh, instantiate that mission over the next few years here's how this year's strategies delivers on that here's how your functions ladder up to that but a cool tool, one of our researchers, Gabriela Kellerman, who is our chief innovation officer, designed with Martin Seligman, they wrote this amazing book together called Tomorrow Mind, which is based on all better ups data. What are the real meta skills that matter in the economy of the future? They ha- came up with this tool called mattering maps, which is, a, it almost looks like a little solar system. We take all of our leaders and our employees through this, which is like, here's you, what are your personal values? You draw them out. What are the teams you contribute and support in the business system? What are the outcomes that creates in our ecosystems for customers? And it's a very visual, easy way for someone to say, hey, I may be a ticket taker. I'm a customer support agent. I take tickets away. That's not actually what you do. Like, What you actually do is you bring empathy, zest, and playfulness to people every day when they're having tough problems. And you do that by partnering with our sales team, our support team, our engineer team. And by doing that, what you actually do is you make customers' lives easier. You allow more people to have the life-changing experience of better up. Okay, you have just helped someone connect deeply that seemingly benign, rote task of answering a Zendesk support ticket. You've now, as a leader, helped catalyze meaning around that. And say, you're actually not doing that. It's back to the old janitor at NASA I'm putting people on the moon. You are putting people on the moon. Someone has to sweep the floors. And that that is what we found when we studied workers and we looked at everything from literal janitors to knowledge workers to everything. The people who could connect how the tasks they do contribute to bigger human outcomes were the happiest, the most fulfilled, and the top performing people. And so our jobs as managers is to literally connect the dots. And whether it's through your mission to metrics, whether it's through a tool like mattering maps, these are all tools. The real answer to this is management. The way you connect the dots is the reason middle management exists. We should stop thinking middle management as supervisory work. It's catalytic converters that help convert context to meaning for people. That's the job of management in this modern century. And we'll probably have a bunch of AI supervise different aspects of jobs, but what the manager becomes is a really powerful storyteller on connecting why this matters, why you matter, how this contributes to your personal journey, how this contributes to the company's journey. That's the job of the manager in in this century.
0: Mm -hmm. And when they do that well, as you said, the employee's they're they're happier. They're more productive. You know, there's the ripple effect of all all goodness that comes from understanding their purpose and the role and why they matter. And then you see it in stock prices. You see it in the bottom line. You're outperforming your competition. It's this cyclical cycle. You help them, they'll help you. They feel they matter. You show them that they matter.
1: There's really no downside. <laughs> it's kind of hard to argue against. You know, if you're a skeptic, you may say, "Well, I don't know that it's going to do all of that." Okay. Well, if it does like 5% of that, it's better than the status quo. But my counter argument is like, what do you have to lose? Worst case, you've just enabled your managers to provide more clarity, more focused direction. Like, I think we can all agree that's just good. Does it scratch this existential itch? Maybe you don't believe the search general, but like the data is there. Well-being moves with mattering. That's why it's included in his framework. And the data is there to your studies, to some new studies that come out. Well-being tracks pretty well to stock prices and top performing organizations. And so- do you have to believe the most grandiose version of this? No. If you just believe that my people are more cl- have more clear priorities and more focused, they will be better at their jobs, you should still do this.
0: So something that intrigued me while I was doing my research was your description of the three jobs every employee at BetterUp has. So you have one, extreme owner, meaning you're vested in the company's success. Two, you're a citizen of the company, which is you you display the values we've just talked about. And then three last is the role you're hired for, you know, your actual quote unquote job. So why do you put that? And you've said, you know, if you do the last one, you know, your job really well, but not the first two, you're probably not a fit. Well, you're not a fit here. So why do you put so much weight on those first two jobs, so to speak?
1: I think the simplest way to describe it is if I can generalize, it's probably a generally speaking true, but specifically not always true. Most pathologies of organizations, most I encounter when I'm coaching C-suite leaders or talking to customers, they come down to usually one thing. People forget what their job is. People start to confuse the super system and the subsystem, and they start to optimize for subsystems over the super system. And that's exactly what that latticing of those jobs is encouraging people not to do. The reality is, if you're on a soccer team, football team for our, our international colleagues, you all have the same job, help the team win. Now you have a position. But the reality is the position changes. Sometimes the goalie has to come out of the box. If you just say my job is to stop goals, then like you're going to help the team lose in that moment, you got to come out of the box. But that's most of what we deal with in corporations is well, my job's to hit my quota. My job is to hit my KPI. No, no, no. Your job is to help the team win, to achieve the mission of the company. There's a hypothesis that we've baked into this business's design that if you hit this MBO, that's how you contribute to it. But it's important to have the intellectual humility and be very candid with employees. They're not the same. The MBO may change. The role may change. What doesn't change is that your number one job as an extreme owner to pull from Jocko and extreme ownership? We love that book is to help the mission succeed. And that means we will refactor, or as the Navy SEALs will say, we will flex on the X to change anything in the mission dynamically to help that succeed. And actually that empowers employees and it helps them not be what Roger Martin would call choices doers. you are just like the flip side of this is my job is this is my job. That's not my job. Over my pay grade. I'm a choiceless doer. I just live in this box. And so what we're trying to do with those three things is to say, no, you live in a box called the better up mission. That's what you're committed to. You all have equity. That's what you're vested in. You live in a box of our values. That's your citizenship. And your job is to not be perfect at the values. Your job is to be on the Camino, to be a pilgrim on these values, to be headed towards Santiago, whatever that is for you, and getting better at these values every day. And when you have a community of pilgrims doing that, you naturally get self-compassionate empathy because you understand how hard it is. And thirdly, by the way, you have a day job, you know, something you do most of your hours a day. And if you're good at it in a high growth startup, it's going to change all the time. If you're bad at it, it probably won't change. And that should be concerning to you because we're growing all the time. When you're doubling, 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 if your job is staying constant, uh, you're probably not growing with the business. And so it's actually been really empowering and really freeing, and it's, it's enabled us to have a career model of more quests and tours of duty where people are excited and comfortable to try new day jobs, roles as we call them, because they have some commitment and reciprocity from the org on those first two jobs that provides that connective tissue.
0: How do you create a sense of well-being, you know, for yourself now? Do you, I know you were a coach. I believe, I don't think you're a coach anymore. Do you still get coaching?
1: Yeah, I get, I have two coaches actually. So I still get coaching. I, I work with the coach on the BetterUp platform and I actually work with the coach who helped inspire BetterUp through my own experience. I still work with her. I, we're probably going in near a decade somewhere. I'd have to go look when we first started. It's a long time. Um, so yes, coaching is a is a big part of it. It's a, It's a huge part of it. Walking for me is another one. And so I have like daily constitutional walks. I did one this morning for about an hour with my wife. I try to do one in the evening as well. These are really critical for me. Great book in praise and walking. Like essentially the mind is supercharged when you walk. If you can walk by water, Blue Mind, another great book on neuroscience. Just hearing being near water is like gasoline, jet propulsion fuel for the human mind. And so walking by water is like one of the, if you can do it, and not everyone can, but even if you're by a fountain in a park, it's really actually just almost medicinal in terms of what it unlocks for you. And so walking is a huge one, coaching is a huge one. And then for me, reading is a huge one. And I'm a slow reader because I tend to daydream, drift off, but that's actually kind of like cathartic for me. And so I read every night before I go to bed. I have a simple rule. I do not read anything related to business or the economy or anything that could get me thinking about better up. And it's kind of like a spin cycle in my mind. And so I go to bed, I'm reading a Star Wars book now. I go to bed thinking about a galaxy far, far away. And I wake up thinking about a galaxy far, far away instead of like immediately being in the woes, the worries, whatever the daily tribulation is of of running a high growth startup. And so, you know, more, but those those would be the three big practices for me that they've almost created like a hygiene around it at this point.
0: Mm Mm-hmm what gets you out of bed in the morning
1: lots of things i mean i have a 1-year-old son noah so he literally gets me out of bed in the morning but he's just a joy he's so he's he's like his mother super centered super fun fun loving chill not like me i'm a little bit of a mess <laughs> um so he he does but you know i'm i'm really fortunate like i I literally have been doing this for 20 years in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, I'm mid thirties. It's like two thirds of my life has been focused on this thing of how do you help people build meaningful lives and realize their potential through leadership and life skills and and good mental health. And So for me, it's just kind of my life's work and it's who I am as a person. And that's a, that's a privilege entrepreneurs tend to have is you get to so deeply identify with your work um, that it feels like an extension of yourself. And so you know, there's days where I don't want to get out of it. sure. But most days, it's excitement. I'm ex- genuinely excited about what we're doing. I feel so deeply about the impact we can make in people's lives. And I just feel so darn lucky to get paid to do this. I was doing this for a decade, not getting paid. There is no better job for me personally. I'm not saying that for everyone. But for me personally, given what I care about, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be starting a mental health. It's like I'd be doing the same thing in a different form. I know myself. I'm a one trick pony. So, like, that's what gets me out of bed.
0: And what keeps you up at night besides, you know, besides also Noah. Noah? Yeah, <laughs> also, Noah. <laughs> yeah, he's
1: a pretty good sleeper. So, I actually, I, literally, I, I feel like I have some like great gift. I sleep super well. I know a lot of founders. That's not the case. They're always like, oh, I'm like, I generally, like things have to be really bad for me to like wake up in cold sweats. You know, like generally I'm a great sleeper. I get my eight to nine hours, no problem. But figuratively speaking, what keeps me up at night is it's people. It's always people, you know, it goes back to the work you all do. It's culture. It's, you know, do I worry about scaling business processes? Not really. I worry a lot more about who we're hiring. Are we enabling them? Are they helping contribute to the culture in positive ways? Like is the culture evolving in the way we need to match the evolution of the business? And so if I were to like time code, you know, my worries and concerns, I think appropriately they're almost all about people and, and not from me anymore. It's really the leaders I'm hiring, the leaders I'm coaching, the leaders I'm enabling one to two to three layers down now at scale. How, how am I setting them up for success? How are they showing up? That's where I spend probably, you know, when I'm in a worry zone, that's probably where I'm spending most of my time. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thanks, Alexi. Thanks for all your time. I learned so much and I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Well, likewise, thanks for having me and keep up the good work. This is awesome podcast.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a five-star rating, write a review, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can stream this and previous episodes wherever podcasts are available.